Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into the Zach Kuhn Show, which is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Okay, here we go. Let's dive in. Did you know that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day? Hi, Zach Kuhn here entrepreneur, Nashville music business professional. And I'm here to tell you that if you need to recruit people for your business, Zip Recruiter is the place to do it. But don't take my word for it. Take, well, actually, you should take my word for it. And here's what you need to do. You need to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Zach. That's www.ZipRecruiter.com slash Zach to learn more there about recruiting the best people for your business The fastest, best people fast. You know that fast, good, cheap pyramid? Well, this is doing it all. This is fast, good, and yeah, you got to check out the pricing online. That's kind of above my pay grade, but Zip Recruiter, check it out. Too, too, Too many ads. Here we go. Episode 57, Ken Davenport. He is a Tony winning Broadway producer. His credits include Once on This Island, The Play That Goes Wrong, Kinky Boots, 13, which featured Ariana Grande, of course, and many more. He is also, and this is a fun fact about Ken, he is also a country music fan. We talk all about it. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have Ken on the podcast is because Obviously, I work in the concert industry. He works in the theater industry. There are a lot of parallels. Both are industries that are going to have to figure out how to reopen over the next six months to a year, whenever it is that we get back into these venues. And I really wanted to pick his brain on how that was going to happen and what that was going to look like. And we talk all about, he shares a ton of insight. I share a little bit of insight as well. We have a great conversation about the future of live entertainment and we talk about so much more. I love Ken's energy. I love his perspective on things. I'm a big fan of his podcast and his blog, The Producer's Perspective. I'm an avid listener, and I reached out to him to come onto this podcast, and I am thankful that he said yes. So here we go, episode 57, Ken Davenport. Let's dive in. I learned this recently in your email that you are actually a country music fan. Right? This is true. I'm a, I'm a, I was just listening to Darius Rucker just moments ago. His new single, have you checked out his new single, Masterpiece, that just came out? I just saw it popped up on Amazon Music, actually, when uh, when I signed it. I haven't heard it yet. Have you always been a country music fan? How, how'd you how'd you fall in love with country music? No, you, you don't want to know. It's like one of the, you know, you want to hear the, like, I stumbled upon an old Johnny Cash album. And the, the fact is, I, like, when Florida Georgia line crossed over into the pop charts, I got hooked and went down the, the wormhole of like pop country. And then, you know, I listened to the highway like all the time in the car. That's it. The highway, the Sirius XM channel. It's funny because, you know, I grew up in New York seeing theater and I'm a huge Broadway fan. Uh, my brother's actually a producer. And, you know, I, my two loves are Broadway and country music. I moved to Nashville after college to work in the country music industry. And I think about like the parallels, like why do I love both? Is it a storytelling element? Yeah. Is that is that what it is? Because I've also been thinking how with a couple exceptions, there was like Bright Star, Nine to Five, there's a Florida Georgia Line musical in the works with Lively McCabe. There hasn't really been a great country musical. Oh. Why why do you think that is? Are we due for a great country musical? I, I actually wrote that blog years ago. I'm trying to look it up. So there has never been a good one. 
never really maybe best little whorehouse in Texas. Uh, but the challenge is that our the first audience that the, our, our tastemaker audience that spreads the word of mouth that gets tourists that coming, et cetera, is a New York Manhattanite Upper East Side audience, right? Just not the uh, country music audience no, quickly. <laughs> not at all. But you're absolutely right. It's the same reason I love country music is that they they're story songs. They tell stories about characters, usually underdog characters, right? Like, and that's what makes great musicals. But the twang does not sit well with uh, with an Upper East Sider. So would you have to, like, I, I had the uh, producers of the Florida Georgia Line Musical on this podcast, and they were talking about how their strategy is that they're going to tour it first and take it around the country before they try to bring it to Broadway. Is that how you think you would have to do it with a country musical? That's how you would have to break it? Yeah, well, listen, when you have a popular song catalog, it helps. There's no question about it. So, but yeah, like, does it even need to play Broadway? I don't know. Who knows? Like, you could you could play all those those states in the South where we know country music is, you know, huge and do well enough there. I mean, that's that's what we're seeing on Broadway now is that to be a successful Broadway musical, you may not have to come to Broadway anymore and you may be better off not. Right, right, right. What's the, I always think about working in the concert industry, how it's interesting that we are so, um, you know, we're, we're so held to the people in the band. You cannot replace Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stones, yet you can replace Lin-Manuel in Hamilton, as hard as it is to believe. And I always think about how that's such a luxury of the theater industry. And is that because of the established brand? Is that because of the like like to me that's so interesting why couldn't you tour kiss without any of the original members of kiss to me it seems that that should be something that could happen what does broadway tap into that hamilton for example can have seven productions around the world without the original cast and nobody cares they still go and they see the show for some reason the concert industry it feels like we can't really do that well, you, you can't and you can. I mean, it's it's been done with Journey. It's been done with Queen. Like these guys, when, you know, they have to, they have to. It's certainly not nowhere near to the same success as the originals. But we're selling a story. We're not, you know, we're selling a three-hour story, not a three-minute song. And there's a big difference. I mean, we, you know, if you look at the 10, it, so I raise a lot of money for my shows, right? That's what a Broadway producer has to do. And the most common question I get from investors is who's in it, which is a very, of course, a good question, but it's actually not the most important question. Because if you look at the 10 longest running musicals of all time, nine of them were open without a star. And the 10th was Chicago, which is also the only revival on the list. And the stars were actually musical theater stars more than anything. So it's, I actually, when I answer that question is like, you want me to tell you right now that there isn't a name in my show that you know, because what we're gonna do is make the show the star. And when the show is the star, that's when the upside is ginormous and Phantom can play all over the world because it's not dependent on Hugh Jackman or Madonna or whoever else it is. So while stars provide great insurance policies, they are not actually where you can see the biggest upside uh, because you're right. We're, we're about stories. We're about stories. What's the secret? Like when you have a long running show, like Kinky Boots, for example, 
What's the secret, or if you have multiple companies also, what's the secret to quality control in the cast and make sure that as new cast members are coming in over time, you still keep a high quality? Like if you have multiple productions around the world, doesn't that get, doesn't that get really hard to make sure that each one maintains a certain level of quality? Yeah, that's where it's about that creative team and specifically the director. Like you want a director that takes that casting process and that rehearsal process and, and holds it in very high value. So they're not just off doing their next show, that they are checking in, they are seeing the shows, they are involved, they're approving, they're going to the rehearsals for the second national company and making sure that it does adhere to their quality control. So it's about the creative team. And I would only do shows with people that were really would really care a lot about it. Right, absolutely. So tell me about, you've got this crazy BHAG, this crazy big audacious goal of producing 5,000 shows by 2025, right, if I'm not mistaken. First of all, I'm curious if we're still on track with the pandemic. And also, what like what does that mean? How involved do you have to be to count it and check it off your list? Do you have a system for this? Like, like I, I just love this goal and I'm just curious how you're approaching it. So yes, it is true. I developed a goal uh, years ago. Um, called 5,000 by 2025. It's to help get 5,000 shows produced by 25. I physically cannot produce 5,000 shows uh, in that period of time, no way, shape or form, but I'm going to produce and or help get produced. I'm gonna get shows off the ground and inspire other theater makers to do the same thing. Because look, very simple is this. I believe the world is a better place if there's more theater in it. There is only more theater in it if there are more people making it. So what I do is a lot of things to help inspire people and give them the tools and resources to do that. So it started when I, I started writing a blog over, I think it's 11 or 12 years ago now, a podcast like over six years ago. I founded something called the Theater Makers Studio, which is like a masterclass like community for, for theater makers. So, and yeah, we, listen, there's no question. I'm not gonna say, hey, you know, we're just like speeding ahead thanks to this pandemic. Although I am counting streaming shows. So we did. That definitely counts. How many streaming shows did we check a off? A lot, a lot actually. Uh, the barrier to entry there is much easier. So, you know, listen, we're making very good progress. A lot of people's shows are getting up, getting ahead um, because of what we're able to do, which is frankly, just connect a lot of people online and with the resources and information that they've never been able to get before until the Theater Maker Studio. What's the, because you talk a lot about streaming um, shows and you always talk about how you can't take what you do in person and just put it to streaming. You need to figure out how to format it for streaming. Obviously in the music industry side, we're, we're trying to figure out concerts and live streaming and things like that as well. Have you um, tapped into anything that, that has really worked for you? I know you've talked about experimenting with the chats or sending things to people like food or drinks. You know, what should they be consuming when they're watching the musical or a show, anything that, that you've, you've found that has really been special and worked for you? Well, the big thing is the, the interactivity in the chat, I think, and how that is something that is unique to the platform. Because when you are seeing something live, you can only talk to the person next to you. Right. You can't talk to the person in the balcony and say, my seats are better than yours, right? Like you can't do that kind of thing, but you can do it in a streaming platform. So that makes it unique. You can talk to everybody. So instantly that's a market differentiator and it's something that we should experiment with. And the other thing is the performers 
can talk to you and or read everything that everyone is saying. So they can't usually hear the person in the balcony, but in a Zoom performance or a live, they can. They can watch and like the, the performance, we did the, we live streamed the Shaws, these YouTube sensations, Matt and Savannah Shaw. And Savannah told us, she was like, I have to admit, I was like singing and couldn't stop reading the comments coming through. And that's just something you can't get, right? So that's what's unique, right? Like I believe that every platform, every medium, you have to find what's unique about it and exaggerate that. So that's what we're looking at mostly. It is cool. It's like a weird feeling when you're on a live stream. Maybe it's a Twitch and you donate a bit or whatever it is and someone calls out your name on the live stream. You don't think it's going to have an effect on you, but it, but it kind of is it kind of takes you back like, "Oh my god, this person just called me out." <laughs> I did I did that on Twitch actually because I was like learning Twitch and I was on yeah. a buddy I was on uh, Alex Boniello's uh Twitch, who's a Broadway star and I was on his Twitch. And um, I wanted to donate a little something and I wanted to help out or something. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And I also wanted to learn. So I threw in a hundred dollar donation and Which like, is a huge Twitch donation, by the uh, way, I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. That's like my standard, like charity donation. All of a sudden it was like a slot machine going on. People are like, Whoa, playa. Like it was, it was ridiculous, but yeah, it, it, it did that thing. It gave me a little bit of dopamine. So you can see why it was addictive. You can see why people do it and actually support a lot of people on Twitch, including a lot of Broadway people that are on Twitch. Um, so it's been great, but yeah, that kind of interactivity, that kind of thing is something, you know, part video game, part live performance is this new form of art that's, that's being created. Absolutely. So I, you know, one of the things I've heard you say about Broadway reopening is that one of the struggles is we're going to have to, we're going to have to teach people to get back into the habit again of attending shows. And I think it's going to be similar for the concert industry also that people are going to have to get into the habit of going out to concerts. Have you thought about this struggle at all? Like, is it just going to be something that's going to happen slowly and surely as people attend and word of mouth spreads? Or is there going to have to be like a big Broadway marketing campaign on the subways? That's a general Broadway marketing campaign. Like, like what's it going to take to get people back into the habit of seeing shows? It's going to take all of it. I mean, it's going to take a big marketing campaign, which, the, which Broadway will do. It's going to take like everything. The number one thing that moves tickets, that moves products is word of mouth. So I believe it's going to take those audiences in the first few weeks having the most amazing time they've ever had. And they will, because it will be the most sensational experience. I mean, just imagine you're in the audience of one of those first few shows where the curtain goes back up. It's going to be ridiculous. I remember so, the notions of seeing Godspell um, up uh, when they, um, at the um, production that they did outside. And I remember everyone, that production was crying. We were all crying. It was so emotional when that started let alone when we actually get back into a Broadway theater. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, so that word of mouth is going to be sensational. You'll see a big marketing campaign. I also think you'll see a, a big influencer campaign, whether it's planned or not. Like, I think you'll see a lot of very famous people going to see theater and including concerts and all that and selfieing like crazy. And that that kind of influence will will help. Uh, and then it's frankly just people coming and, and being healthy and happy and that will spread because people will be nervous. I mean, even fully vaccinated people, they're still like this, like what's, what the heck is going on in the world? Like I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll, I'm, I was thinking about vacationing and I was like, even when vaccinated, I'll be like, wait, 
what's happening? Where am I right now? How does this work? What's going on in the world? And it's going to take some time, but, but we'll get there. There's also so much to like when I wrote that blog about like breaking the habit, it was still early. Now it's like, there's so much demand and excitement about this thing being over. It's like, we just want to get out and do something. It's, yeah. You know, I'm like that. You could do a revival of like moose murders or scary <laughs> or something that's really like a big flop and, and people would rush to it. We'll go, we'll go see it. So I put a little segment together called things the music industry does that I have not seen the Broadway industry do. And I'm curious if they could implement them. Great. Uh, the first one is meet and greets. Everybody in the music industry does a meet and greet. Maybe this could work on Broadway. Maybe it couldn't. I think you could even have like an Elphaba understudy do a meet and greet for little kids and, you know, charge a lot of money for it and create a word of mouth tool that people will post on social media. Could Broadway implement a meet and greet into their shows? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm going to throw something in your chat that you can look at later, but I, I'm a huge Chris Young fan and I went to see him and I wrote five things I learned from country star Chris Young on my oh, anniversary. Oh, I love this. And um, number two is meet and greets. We, we were lucky enough, we were lucky enough to um, get some FaceTime with Chris and uh, I, you know, it was an official meet and greet and we got a little extra FaceTime, but uh, yeah, I, I've been pushing this a lot actually. And I think you'll see this. We have the unofficial ones, which are, you know, the thing that separates from us from other industries, which is very special, is that not everyone can see, I don't know, we'll just use Nick Jonas. You go to see a Jonas Brothers concert and Nick Jonas or Justin Timberlake, not everyone can see him in person when that concert is over. Because of where Broadway theaters are, like every single person that wants to see a Broadway star can hang out at the stage room and see them. And that makes us very special, right? Like that makes us accessible. I do still think there's another way to go, an official meet and greet version where you bring people in. Uh, yes, they're, um, they charged some money. I think people will pay for it. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's something we could do for sure. Is it tough? Does it almost feel like the concert industry almost in a way feels like the concert industry might be more accessible where the Broadway industry might feel like we don't want to take these photos. It, it feels maybe off brand maybe, but I think it did for music too until they started doing it. And then that's they the thing. It's, it's one of those things I think that a lot of people are like, Oh, we don't want to, that just feels weird to charge people to do this. When the fact of the matter is people want to pay for it. They want they want a moment. Of course they do. And they're willing to do it. And if they don't, they can wait at the stage door line. Right. Like that's the thing. So I'm a big believer is like give the people what they want. And this is something they want. Absolutely. Okay. The meet and greets might be coming to a Ken Davenport show soon. Second one is texting. I feel like every music artist got on a platform like community, started texting their fans I may be out of the loop, but I, I don't think I've seen too many shows do this. Texting has like a 98% open rate. You were the first guy to get people emailing. Could Broadway shows get on texting platforms? Maybe you even have Elphaba again, texting kids. You know, you could have her texting as Elphaba. You could have Alexander Hamilton texting you facts about the Revolutionary War when tickets go on sale. Could a show get on a texting platform? Yeah, we've experimented with this a little bit, haven't seen too much success with it. I actually, back in 2008, I tried something with it with 13. Text messaging was like a big thing back then. Then it died very quickly because no one wanted And now it's actually come back through community and other sites. 
So I do. I think you're right. I think you're we're we're due for another attempt at, at the texting platform. The texting platform could work. It could work on a uh, on a show. The key okay. is just getting them in multiple ways, and social media texting email. Yeah. Well, it's just oh, it's, hitting fans in, in many apps. Yeah, exactly. And whatever is the best for them. Absolutely. Okay, I've got two more here quickly. NFTs are blowing up in the music industry. Could there be a Broadway auction? Could a Broadway show, Broadway actor sell an NFT? Could it happen with a Ken Davenport musical? Yes, but you have to remember, it's like the, our, my industry is 10 years behind every other industry. And I used to say that with a negative connotation. And I try very hard to challenge us. Like I streamed the show in 2015. So like I tried to push. Legs. But the reason that we are 10 years behind is that our audience is much older. Like we, our average audience member is 44 years old. Most 44 year old people are like, what the F is an NFT? And I don't want to figure that out. I'm still figuring out how to sign on to Instagram or take a photo with my camera the right way. Like they don't, they're just not on that level. So I, I don't think you're going to see this like anytime soon in what we do sometime, but usually when F NFTs are out, <laughs> that's when Broadway, that's when Broadway will adapt. Okay. Last one, which may go back to the NFT one. There were several uh, artists streaming in video games this year. The Travis Scott and Fortnite had millions and millions of people tuning in. Could there be a Broadway video game partnership? I think there are probably a lot of young Broadway fans who play video games. Could there be a special partnership, a show in Fortnite that pops up? Could that be done? Yes, it certainly could. But again, you have to look at the primary demographic that drives ticket sales. So even on shows that have a large like youth audience, like a lot of people talk about Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, Dear Evan Hansen, it's all kids that love Dear That is not true. Like the reason why Dear Evan Hansen is a hit is that it actually appealed to the parents just as much as the kids. And if you look at that show quickly, it's just as much about Evan Hansen's mom, right? Right. Uh, as and 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 the other kid's mom, as it is about the kids. So, and that's why it hit because their parents bawling their eyes out at the end of that show because it feels like it connects with their own family. So, video games just don't connect with the parents as much as the kids. And remember, we we have a very high price ticket, so. We need those parents. Uh, we need to get them hooked first. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for playing. Ken, why do you make yourself so accessible? To me, it's mind blowing. At the end of every email, you say something like, if you have a question, email me. If you want to do this, email me. You have the emails, the podcast. This right here is like, you've made yourself so accessible to a total stranger we've never met before. Why do that? To me, it seems like so few incredibly successful people do it to that to this degree. Well, first of all, I thought we met. That's the only reason I'm on this. Are thing. you serious? So you thought we met? No, no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, <laughs> no, listen, I remember what it was be, what it was like. I, rem I remember it felt very lonely when I wanted to make theater, when I wanted to learn more about making theater. And I vowed then that I would try to share as much information and resources and, and as possible to help other people do what I wanted to do. So yeah, listen, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, but it's something I'm really committed to and passionate about, which is helping inspire the next generation of theater makers. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm lucky. I am very blessed. I get to wake up every morning, even in this pandemic, I get to wake up every morning and go to work. I'm at my office right now and work on my hobby. I mean, this is what I just love. 
So I consider myself so blessed. I want to be able to encourage other people to do it uh, and help them any way I can. Is it true that your board game has been um, providing great income during the pandemic? Is that, <laughs> is that a big source of income or a source of income, the board game? It's yeah, I will say this board game sales did increase when this pandemic began for sure. During the pandemic. Yeah, without a doubt, because we also had a Broadway puzzle uh, and that thing sold out. I think there's just a few more left now. Um, that thing sold so fast because people were stuck at home. Um, we saw membership in Theater Maker Studio just leap because people were, were stuck at home and uh, obsessed with education and learning more during this period. So, yeah, it, it, it helps diversifying yourself into other businesses. Are you good at, you know, I think your videos are really great because you kind of, you have a way of making things that are maybe seem very complicated and explaining them very simply and kind of putting them to layman's terms. Is that something that you've worked on or thought about? Have you tried to watch a lot of educational videos to see what other people do you know, well and wrong? Or is it just practice over time? Like, like how, how would you develop kind of a teaching style online? That's a very good question that no one's ever asked me before. And I, I think it's because one, I had very good teachers and I studied a lot of different things. So, you know, look, I went to a very prestigious college prep school. I went to Johns Hopkins first before Tisch. I also studied voice. I like like intensely. I studied golf intensely. So like I study a lot of different things with a lot of teachers of varying sources. And I can I, I've learned what works on me, which is not pretending you're a Harvard MBA professor. Like it's about just simple what makes sense, descriptions and, and analogies. And and I'm also like a pretty simple guy. Like, you know, you know, people ask like, where would you like to go to dinner? I'd be like, bring me to a Chili's. Like I'll take something easy. Uh, so I think I can just put things into very simple, you know, simple terms that people can understand. Uh, and that's what's worked on me. And hopefully that's what's helping other people. Absolutely. So you're currently producing the Neil Diamond musical. What's the secret to a, a great jukebox musical? Is it the story first that you have to make sure the story is told in an amazing way? Is that the secret? It's always the story. Like it doesn't matter how great the music is. And look, with Neil, I'm blessed to be working with one of the greatest music catalogs ever. Did you have this idea to produce this and then pitch it to Neil or did someone come to you with the idea? No, listen, I, I'm sure I had the idea, but I probably was like, that's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Um, and just goes to show you that even I have those moments where I think like that could never happen. It's too big or surely someone's doing it. Uh, and then that was something that came to me through a friend of a friend that actually connected me with Bob Gaudio, um, one of the original Four Seasons, right. um, who's Neil's very, very close friend. Uh, and Neil had told Bob because of Jersey Boys, I want my own Jersey Boys. Uh, and I, Bob and I got close and next thing you know, we're, we're partnering on this thing together. Holy cow. It's going to be unbelievable. How yeah. important is the, um, for a show like this, I've heard you say something really interesting, which is the show's logo should create interest, not sales. So for this Neil Diamond musical, have you started thinking about the <laughs> logo yet? How important is it to get the logo right on a musical? Well, listen, brand and logo and art is very, very important. I will say that I've learned this over the years to like not obsess and become such a perfectionist about it that like, oh my God, if you get it wrong, it's not going to work because that's just not the case. 
at the end of the day, the word of mouth and people going to the show and telling their friends, that's what's going to sell the most tickets. So the idea that I have to get this so perfect, because if I don't, people won't buy tickets is just not true. That's not what brands or logos do. They do this, they raise interest, they make people lean in. What's that? I wanna learn more about that. So anything you can do to kind of get that interest. The other thing they do is remind people, oh, there's that thing that I love. So the Nike swoosh, any of these things. So you see that places now and you're like, boom, I know exactly what that is. I know that I love it. I know that it means first class. I know that it means athletic. I know that it means just do it. So that's what you're trying to do is those, those kind of things that can remind people about the experience they had when they were last using your product. Uh, and that's what we hope to get with, with Neil is something that delivers, you know, that says, hey, we know when you think Neil Knight Diamond Musical, you probably have an image in your mind, right? I need to develop art that matches that image in a way. Because it comes with, like, unlike a new musical, this comes with a pre-existing feeling, an emotional connection. I have to match that, but also raise it up to say, hey, this is going to be what you know, love, and want it to be. But at the same time, we're going to take you a different place with it that you can't even imagine. Right. So what's the first step, like, when you're putting together a jukebox musical, is the first thing, figuring out, like, where the songs are going to be. You've got to find that I want song. How are we going to open this? You know, is that the first step or is the first step, let's figure out how we're going to tell this story? How, how does that process begin when you have a, a work that you know is going to be a big part of it? Well, it's it, listen, the first step is, all again, always the story. You're saying, what story can I tell? Now, look, with something like Neil, you're starting like, well, obviously, Sweet Caroline is going somewhere, right? Like, we're, we're putting that in It'd somewhere. It'd be a real bummer if it, if, yeah. if it didn't. <laughs> I would have, like, protests. So... Yeah, so it's it's about the story. Now, you know you're going to have certain moments, but it's about finding the right moments for those. I recently heard a reading of another jukebox musical, and I and a, and a more of a pure one, because jukebox and catalog, uh, those are like, I feel, where you're fabricating a story. We call we call the Neil Diamond musical a bio-musical, because it's really telling us that, yeah, the songs, you know, Neil was speaking from his heart when he wrote those songs. It's not like we're, it's Mamma Mia, we're taking these songs and fabricating a plot. And it, right. so it's a little different. So we're finding those key moments in his life where these songs came out uh, and they really meant something. Is that kind of a, is that like low brow to say a jukebox musical also? Is that almost like offensive to the work? No, it's not. Listen, I think there are three types of musicals that use pre-existing catalogs. Bio musicals that tell the life of the artist compilation music or catalog musicals where you're, it's like a jukebox musical, like, or sorry, uh, a catalog musical, which is like Mamma Mia, fabricated story, but one artist. And right. then jukebox musical, I really like- pages or- Yeah, because think about it. What's a jukebox? A jukebox doesn't have one artist. Lots they have artists. lots of artists. So that's your rock of ages. Those are those types of shows. Motown. Exactly. I'm glad we cleared this up. This is yeah. good. We've 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 accomplished something big today. So you said, I think you said this in 2012, that you predicted at a TEDx conference that in 2013, all playbills would be green and electronic. That has not happened yet. And I, to me, it seems obvious that that should have happened. Why has that not happened yet? Could that still happen? It could still happen. But listen, I think the, the primary reason why that has not happened 
is because our consumers do not want it to happen. The playbill is still a very valuable piece of property to anyone who pays $150 a ticket. It is a souvenir catalog. It's a souvenir item that they don't have to pay for. They get it. It's part of it. So I believe, and we've talked to them about this, consumers, that if they don't get a playbill, they don't feel like they're getting the full Broadway experience. It's so well-branded. It's hard to take it away. I mean, it's like I go to a movie and I rarely go to movies now, but I go to a movie, I'm effing getting popcorn. It's a part of it. And the playbill is almost like popcorn, except they give it away. It's true. I collect all my playbills. I don't want them to go away. Everybody does. They're also worth nothing. They're like worth every, nothing. Everybody thinks like, I'm going to collect this playbill. Someday it's going to be worth $500. None of them are worth anything. I've never heard that. Do people really think that? People think the playbills are going to be worth a lot. Listen, I listen. I have like original playbill. I have a carry somewhere, like early Phantom of the Eye, all the stuff. No one wants them. No one wants them. No one wants them. Did you know Ariana Grande was going to be a star when she was in 13? Well, listen, I, I learned to recognize a certain thing, which is when I go see a show and for whatever reason, I can't take my eyes off a of performer. I know that they have what it takes to be a star. And the first example I ever saw of that was Kristen Chenoweth. I saw her in Steel Pier playing a secondary lead and she had a number in the second act and it was not a very good musical. Uh, and she, there was just some, every time she was on stage, it was just like you just leaned forward and was just smiling and she just owned the whole stage. And Ariana Grande had an even smaller part in 13. But I remember in the curtain call, she had like, two solo lines and you could feel the whole audience go like who is that like what can you i don't care what else is going on in the state bring back that girl so yeah you could tell something was very special about her holy cow okay did you know that god's spell and once on this island had to be in the round at circle in the square theater did you say that's the only theater for these shows and then go after them or did you, or were you looking for any theater and that's what came up and you said, okay, I guess we're going to do this in the round. No, both of them were designed. I remember saying to Stephen Schwartz and Danny Goldstein, like I, Godspell has never been done before in the round on Broadway. That's the way it should be done. And then once on this island, my first conversation with Michael Arden was that, and that we wanted sand. Uh, and actually I went so far, it was like the worst negotiation you could ever imagine. I did an early presentation of Once in the Silent Music and invited only one theater owner. And because normally you invite them all, let them like jump up and down and bid and things. I invited one and then we had a model of the set and the set was modeled after Circle in the Square in the rounds. And I brought the theater owner over and I said, look, and he was like, that looks familiar. And I was like, that's it, I'm showing you my cards. It's the only place I want to go. So give it to me or don't. That's the place. Okay, last um, speed question. If Broadway was happening right now, would you have cast Alec Baldwin in your Welcome America, the, uh, the updated version of it? <laughs> what a very good question. No, I would not because I would do nothing to put who he would be playing. He who shall not be named in any public forum whatsoever. He's gotten enough attention. He should not get any more for the rest of time. Good answer, fair enough. You always post on Instagram every day, these whiteboard quotes, which I always think are really great. How, how do you find those? That seems kind of exhausting to be pulling quotes every day. 
Uh, so that piece of uh, Instagram content, which is actually the most like, I don't know what you'd call it, the most shared, liked, viewed content of anything I put on Instagram, right? Which is amazing to me, but it's because it started organically. Like I, I stare at a whiteboard every single day, it's right there, it's blank right now. That's it, that's, the that's it, that's the big whiteboard. So I stare at that every day. And one day I was feeling a little like, I can't get going today. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll put a quote on the whiteboard that inspires me so that every time I look up, I go, F yeah, and put my head down and go to work. And then one day I was like, wow, this is really helping me. I wonder if it'll help other people. And I started taking pictures of it. And sure enough, it helped other people. So again, this is just one of the hundreds and hundreds of little things that we drew to try to hack people's, uh, you know, their, their productivity and theater making. So it started to help people. So now I can't help but do it because right. I get so many comments and things, but thanks for posting and shares and all this stuff. So yeah, I get up there and scratch something out and, and take a picture and throw it up. How do you, because is there any producer, any Broadway producer that has a bigger social media following than you do? I'm, I'm trying to think, is there anyone not to, but, but my question is like, you were also like, you were on TikTok, like kind of early. I still, I, I can't, I don't know of any other Broadway producer that's on TikTok. When you're trying to figure out these platforms, do you have someone on your team who's native with these platforms? Do you experiment and get on or just kind of follow what other people are doing? Yeah, I'll check out, but then I just jump in. I mean, that's the thing. Like so many people are like nervous, like, what do I do? What do I do? You just jump in and screw up and make, you know, you try things and you see what works and you get called out sometimes like on TikTok, boy, that Gen Z, they are rough. So like you, you throw something up there, they don't like, they've been like, get out of here, old man. Like, like, okay, I'm figuring it out. It's okay. Um, so that's, that's what you do. Like, you're not like I, and I, listen, I, I'm a part of the personal computer generation. So I grew up when computers weren't in every household. And then I saw them become in every household. And I was one like begging my parents to get one, the Commodore 64, Texas Instruments 99, like all this stuff. I grew up experimenting and effing up on computers. So it's fine for me to do it. And it's harder for other people. And what I tell them is just give it a shot. I, I actually still haven't jumped into Clubhouse yet. Uh, and I will. I'm just figuring it out. Do you have the invite? Have you been invited? Yes, I'm on Clubhouse. But on I, haven't Clubhouse yet, yet. I haven't yet done a thing yet, but I will. I, I've been hosting weekly Clubhouses every Thursday with a friend of mine um, who's a music publisher. And we've been having a great time with it. I, I highly recommend it for, for what it's worth, for what it's worth. Yeah, it's like the it's like talk radio, but for everybody, it's like it's 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 fascinating. It's fascinating. We'll see. It'll be. I think it's going to be smaller, but I think it's going to be more quality. Like I think you're going to get real quality conversations, and in, like the people that follow you, that listen to you, they're going to really follow you. They're going to be really into what you're doing, as as opposed to TikTok, which is like the people that are like instantly follow you or watch your stuff. They may never see your things ever again, and nor do they care. And it's, it's cool on Clubhouse how I've been able to connect with people who work in like LA, New York, Australia. Everyone's tuning in, and you can sort of have these conversations with people around the world about what they're going through and connect with them and kind of network. It's, it's a cool, it's a cool tool. Um, there's talk about how you know during this pandemic, you know the Broadway brand is maybe diminished or maybe shows specifically on Broadway might not be as important as you know around the world. 
is it is the Broadway brand important for a nostalgia reason that we keep it around and because we just all grew up and we love Broadway so much or for the quality of theater or for the for live theater and entertainment is it really truly important that the epicenter is Broadway or would it be an okay thing if you know we spread the love a little bit well I think the Broadway brand while certainly it emanates from New York City. It no longer means just New York City. I mean, actually, the owner of the Circle in the Square is quoted as saying Broadway is the longest street in America because it connects all of our touring markets all over the country. And I think it grows and grows. And now Broadway has truly gone global. Like when I started in the business, foreign countries may steal a script, might have stolen a script and knocked it off and put it up on their own. And that's just not the way anymore. There are, are branded licensed productions with the original Broadway sets or choreography or costumes that are done all over the world now. So it's becoming a truly global brand, which I think is an amazing thing. And part of that is because of the, you know, we're all connected now in a way that we couldn't be connected before. One of the biggest events we throw every year is this theater makers summit. And we, we did it online this year and we were able to connect a thousand people from all over the world who all they want to do is just make theater. Uh, and when we're all speaking the same language like that online, the language of theater, the level of theater that we're producing just increases, which means the audience members enjoyment only increases, which right. means they want to see more theater, make more theater, invest in more theater. So it's, it's the globalization of, of Broadway and the brand, I think, is good for all of us. Absolutely. Well, Ken, I don't want to take you on a Monday. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but so appreciative that you've taken a moment to hop on here. I'm always reading the blog, always watching the videos, reading those quotes on Instagram. I'm always uh, I'm always inspired by uh, the, the many hats that you wear and everything you're doing. Uh, Neil Diamond Musical 2022, 2023, 2020. Do we, do we have any kind of timeline on it? I know there's a couple other projects that you're working on as well. What I would tell you and, and all your listeners is actually to watch my social media. Um, there will be an announcement, I would imagine, in the next 90 days or so about when exactly we will see that happening. Okay. And then we've got the vacation musical coming as well, right? Yeah. That's the, yeah. Uh, no one's ever done a vacation. Have there been, I can't think of a vacation on the town, maybe a little bit. Is that a vacation musical, would you say? I guess, but nothing like this. This is about, you know, it's the it's a new installment in the National Lampoon franchise and those Chevy Chase movies. The next chapter, they've gone to Wally World, they've been to Europe and Vegas, and now they're coming to Broadway. So it's actually perfectly timed because we're it's gonna come here. Uh, just at a time where people are really going to want to celebrate coming back to New York and being a tourist again. Uh, and as you can only imagine what happens when Clark Griswold comes to New York City. Absolutely. What's the show you're going to go see when it opens up again? Is, are you eyeing a show to be there opening night? I'm very fortunate enough to be uh, to work with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I also Phantom was the first show I ever saw on Broadway. So there's part of me that thinks I'll be in that audience that night. Uh, but then again, I may want to see something brand new. So I haven't seen six. Like I want to try to go see, I don't, I don't know. I, I may just like stand in the middle of Times Square and just like whirl around, just trying to catch a little bit of everything. What do you do? Do you like in the music industry, we're all about like comp tickets and like, like I can't even remember the last time I paid for a concert ticket, but it's a little different in the Broadway industry. Do you ever pay for a show or do you always get comp tickets? 
Well, I'm a Tony voter, so we get tickets to all the new shows and we have to, uh, because we have to see them in order to vote. Um, but I pay for tickets all the time. I mean, listen, the, you know, it's, it's, it's unlike other industry, we have fixed capacity. I want to support my other producers and the actors and everyone involved. Um, and a lot of stuff I see is off Broadway and off, off Broadway. And yeah, you, you got to pay sometimes, but listen, uh, I also, you know, when you pay for theater tickets and I, I've had this conversation at marketing meetings, like we can get in big arguments at these producer marketing meetings about it should be this, it should be this, it should be this. And I once turned around and looked at everyone in the room and I was like, when was the last time any of you ever paid for a theater ticket? <laughs> like, we don't know. And I, I was including myself, by the way. We don't know what it takes for that family of four to plunk down $600 parking, babysitter, dinner, like all that stuff. We don't know. It's why I'm a big fan of surveying and testing. Um, so I like paying because I, I allow me to go through the process. What's it like? Is it hard to buy a ticket? How does the theater communicate with me afterwards? I see the show before the show. So it's, um, it's, part, of, it's part of it. So we buy tickets. Okay, fair enough. Ken, thanks for taking the time. Theater industry, hopefully back within the next six months, possibly. Is that possible? I think you'll see some shows certainly in the next six months. I think that in the next six to nine, we'll be fully operational. Six to nine, fully operational. And you might catch Ken at Phantom of the Opera opening <laughs> with a really useful group. <laughs> Unbelievable. Ken, thank you so much. So appreciative. My pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. There you have it. Episode 57 with Ken Davenport. Thanks for tuning in. Ken, thanks again for taking the time to come on to the show. By the way, if you're on like this Broadway producing kick, you want to listen to another episode with a great producer or a producing team, I should say, check out an episode from a couple weeks ago with Michael Barra and Steven Snedden, who are currently working on the Florida Georgia Line musical, May We All. Really great episode. Actually, it's going to have a Nashville opening next year. So if you want to learn about that, check out that podcast episode from a couple weeks ago. You will definitely dig it. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. The Zach Kuhn Show is brought to you by the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye.